0: All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Equalizer podcast. I am your host, Claire Watkins, and this week I am joined again by John Halloran. How's it going, John?
1: I'm doing well. It felt nice to get the regular season started.
0: Yeah, I did. I think I'm just going to go ahead and start. I've been starting kind of like this recently, just with sort of a, a vibe check and emotion check. How did it feel to get into some regular season play this weekend? Did it feel like the games mattered a little bit more? Did it feel like maybe they mattered a little bit less in the context of a full regular season? How did it feel to kind of sit through this at, for the first time in two years?
1: You know what it felt like it felt like there was no challenge cup, yeah, to be honest with you, which I saw somebody else say on Twitter, but this is the kind of season you would have expected these games to perhaps uh, the last game notwithstanding have a little bit more offensive punch. It was so surprising to see those, those games, especially on Saturday night, be as tightly contested and at times sloppy as they were, because these are, these are teams which have gotten four or five games under their belt already. And it looked like it was game one for a lot of them.
0: Yeah. I was surprised. It seems like the mental aspect of the game is something that a lot of teams are sort of struggling with right now that I think it's, which I think is interesting. And I don't know if that comes from too much short form play, or you had these teams that knew that they were not going to be in the challenge cup final for a long time. So maybe it's harder for them to get mentally engaged. I would say that it does seem like no disrespect to the challenge cup or even the 2020 challenge cup, but everyone was a little bit relieved to have something a little bit more normal happening to wrap their heads around. Um, And I agree. It did feel like the challenge cup didn't happen except. And I'm actually, this is a good place to start maybe um, the two teams that played in the challenge cup final were the two teams that actually won their games this weekend. Mm, yeah. And I heard on the broadcast and I was like, I don't know if I agree with this, this idea that I know Freya Coom actually said this about her team, that she wasn't sure if they had gotten enough time off in between the final and the beginning of the regular season. But to my eyes, I was like, I actually think this is a big advantage, right? It seemed like the, the teams that played in that challenge cup final looked a little bit sharper than everybody else. And again, I don't know if that's a mentality thing too, where they had something that they had to be very, you know, mentally prepared for, and they've carried that into the regular season. But before we get, before we get into the Gotham game, I want to start, we're just going to do this chronologically. Um, The regular season kicked off on Saturday afternoon, evening in Louisville, actually. So these are the two new clubs, the two new clubs, Louisville hosted Kansas city. They did play to a nil, nil draw, Um, kind of a fractured match Louisville, may be the better side. I don't know if there are any huge positives for anybody coming out of this one, other than that they didn't concede. Um, but you can maybe see the vision for Louisville. Whereas for Kansas city, it seems like they have a very lopsided roster. What did you think of this one, John?
1: I thought for me, the individual performances stood out the most. Um, I actually started counting in the first half because I was so impressed with the way that Victoria Pickett was, was breaking down the Louisville midfield. And I counted six times in the first 24 minutes that she had managed to, you know, uh, beat a midfielder on the dribble or deliver the final ball and just create chances for Kansas city going forward. And I'm guessing, that she's a player that not a lot of fans are familiar with. But if you get a chance, go read a little bit about her story because it's really impressive. She had this major, major injury um, in her final year of college that, that she's just coming back from. And it's interesting because I remember when Kansas City came to Chicago, within the first five or 10 minutes of that game, I saw this Kansas City player this really dynamic play and i thought who is that i didn't know who that was and i looked and i was like oh that's victoria pickett okay and then to see her do this um you know i guess what five games in to her professional career was really impressive um on the other side of the ball i thought savannah mccaskill was the best player for louisville and you know, that's a little bittersweet because I always enjoyed watching her in Chicago. And I, I enjoyed watching her before she even came to Chicago. I loved that, that really fantastic season she had in the W league. And uh, I thought she looked really dangerous. She had that little heel turn mm-hmm. to herself on the end line. That was just terrific. And then uh, later, later in the game, she had this little, this, this cheeky little chip over the last defender to put, to put one of her teammates in. And it it was just fun watching those two individual players.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that it makes sense that you're pulling out individual performances because you saw those moments from both teams. But then for me, just one of the underlying things that I was thinking as I was watching was neither of these teams really have a midfield, especially like a center midfield. So a lot of that space was being bypassed or like you said, players were allowed just to kind of run freely through it. Um, So you did see individuals doing cool things and then, but not necessarily manifesting a team attack or a team defense. Um, Yeah, I definitely, and this is maybe something that will come up later when we talk about Portland versus Chicago. I thought that Louisville's two best performers were the two players that they got from Chicago. I think McCaskill and Nagasato are really big pieces for that team. Um, And, with there was some news before these games started, so we're going to just try to integrate them as we as we talk about it. And one of the things that was announced before games kicked off was that Louisville has signed up and coming English striker Ebony Salmon. And it seems to me like when you see someone like Savannah McCaskill making those moves, getting in line, you think, oh, if you can get like a young, exciting striker making the run centrally, Louisville's attack might really have something going there, even if they have to go sort of direct to get there, right?
1: Well, and they also have CeCe Kaiser, who I think is one of those players who's always just kind of been right there on the cusp. Mm-hmm. You just feel like she's just about to break out. And we haven't seen that yet, but you're right. That, that attack is nice. And, you know, with, with McCaskill and Nagasato, those are the two most experienced players, I think on that team, probably other than, than Betos. Right. And so it, you know, it, it's not surprising that those are the two that are standing out, especially early in the year.
0: Yeah. Um, and then on Kansas City side, it seemed to me as the game was going on, especially after they lost Lola Bonta to injury, that it just kind of highlighted like, oh, no, this team maybe really doesn't have 18 players who can change a game. And I think they might find themselves actually kind of frequently at halftime or at the 60th minute struggling to look at their bench and say, OK, how do we go chase a result rather than just trying to maintain sort of what's already happening on the field?
1: And, well, and I think that's an after effect of after the 2019 season with all of those players in Utah, you saw, I don't, I, I don't know, it was like six or seven or eight retirements, trades, et cetera, where there was nothing coming back the other way. Right. And so, you know, obviously they get through 2020 and then those players rights are transferred over to Kansas City. They just don't have a, a deep roster. And so that's, that's what you're seeing. And it's interesting you mentioned Labanta because I thought she looked really sharp early in that game. So maybe that game turns out differently if she doesn't have to come off.
0: Yeah, I agree. It seems like in the second half, they had a lot of wide options. It's that same idea. They have a lot of wide options. They don't have a lot of central options or the, also the players that they have on the field, looking at someone like Mallory Weber or Darian Jenkins, where if those players are only having an okay game, the rest of the roster can't kind of carry that. So they either need, better execution from the players that they do have or I don't really know for Kansas City or even for Louisville and you kind of got this idea as neither team kind of chased the game late in this one that they're still sort of collecting data they're still figuring things out Um, they'll take a point and and move on because there wasn't a ton of urgency but I also was in the back of my mind saying well I don't know what I would do in this scenario either
1: Well, Jenkins was one that I was hoping to see a little bit more out of in that game. I, I, when I saw her name on the team, sheet, I, I right away, you know, the first 10 minutes of the game was really focusing on her play and seeing if she'd bring herself into the game. And, you know, by the time you got to the end of the the match, she didn't really feel like she had done that.
0: Right. So this one ends nil nil. They'll be happy with that. Definitely an even game for the two teams. I think we're going to see more lopsided things, obviously, as they start playing some other teams. Did this game change your opinion of how many wins you think either of these teams are going to get, or is this still kind of in line with what you thought?
1: Yeah. So it's funny you say that because I, as I was taking notes to this game, I, you know, I was starting to feel that way. I was like, oh, well, maybe I've underestimated these teams because I think I, I said maybe a couple of weeks ago on the pod that. Louisville felt like a team that was coming out with that new team energy still. Right. And that that might fade over the course of a regular season. And I still think that might happen, but uh, as I was kind of getting excited watching this match, even though it was a zero zero game, the last note that I wrote um, in this match was these are still probably the seventh and eighth best teams in the league. So I, you know, when they're playing each other, it's a little tougher to get a gauge of where they might be at.
0: I agree. Um, so they'll take it. So will we, uh, but as we said, um, not necessarily as cohesive as we would have liked to see the regular season start. And this is going to be a little bit of a theme. So let's move on to the next match of the weekend, which was Gotham hosting Houston, Gotham, finally back at Red Bull. It was a really big triumphant moment when cloud nine got to raise their TIFO, um, you could tell that the vibes were really good. Gotham, it really just felt like they had kind of shrugged off the Challenge Cup final, maybe even holding their heads up high because they really competed in that game. And now they're ready to take on the regular season. Gotham does not really outplay Houston here.
1: Right.
0: However, it is that little bit, that little bit of grit, that little bit of magic. And they're the ones that kind of get, they, they get over the top. And I think it's interesting because we saw a couple of, uh, personnel changes for Gotham, right? We saw Carly Lloyd be pushed back into more of a false nine, more of a 10 role behind Evelyn VN. We saw Estelle Johnson start. This was some of the stuff that we talked about on the podcast last week of like, maybe these are some tweaks that Gotham can make to get the 11 best players on their field. Imani Dorsey was not available. I'm not entirely sure why Sabrina Flores didn't start in that spot, but a lot of moves there that I really can't fault that make sense as they work towards their best 11. However... It just feels kind of like luck, right? That Houston didn't score in this one, right?
1: Well, I think the one that felt really lucky was when Rachel Daly came in and cut off that. uh, There was that weird sequence between the defense and Kaylin Sheridan where the ball popped loose and Daly cut through and she could have shot early and you saw what she was thinking. She thought, I'm going to take one more touch, completely open the net up, and then it's just a tap in. And by the time she took that touch, a defender had managed to close in on that space. And so I definitely think that one was a bit of luck. Um, I would like to say though, that I thought Mandy Freeman had another mm-hmm. solid game. Her last ditch tackling is so fun to watch.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: And, and I think you could probably get into a semantic argument about, you know, does the fact that she's making last, well, I was going to say tackles, she works herself you
0: know, into those. Right? Right? Like,
1: yeah. W- yeah. We had this discussion uh, in the 2015 world cup, when we were talking about Julie Ertz getting all the recognition but Becky Sauerbrunn probably being the better player but she didn't have to go to ground because she was just always in the right position so maybe Mandy Freeman has to you know recover into position more but she plays just as hard in in this game or in the Challenge Cup final as she did when when Gotham then Sky Blue was losing games 5 nothing a couple of years ago and that to me really says something about her and her internal desire to win. And you mentioned the TIFO at the beginning. And I just wanted to read this in case anybody didn't see this. It really is a terrific TIFO from cloud nine. It says started from the bottom. Now we're here. And it just really is a testament to that organization and, and those players that are still around from those darker days that they are able to do what they, they do. So, yeah, I do think some of it's luck, but there is, there is that chip on the shoulder of a lot of those players, uh, that, that were there through those dark days. And you just have to give those players and the organization a lot of credit because, of, you know, I don't, 24 months ago, uh, this club was a laughing stock and now they're playing some of the best soccer in the league.
0: Yeah, it's been interesting also to watch, you know, just kind of doing a review, looking at people's predictions for the regular season. Everyone who did one is braver than me. I did not do any regular season predictions, but it seems to me like the common, the common thread is that people are thinking that there are going to probably be seven competitive teams for six playoff spots, Mm -hmm. Portland, North Carolina, Chicago, Houston, Gotham, and OL rain. And so, I saw some that had Gotham right underneath. I saw some that had Houston right underneath. Some had Owl rain right underneath. Um, there's going to be a decent team that does not make the playoffs. And so Gotham kind of getting this one, riding the momentum of the challenge cup final, looking just a tiny bit sharper in front of goal, um, even just in terms of points, that seems like a really big early three points for setting the tone, especially as Houston, who have looked really good, you know, they didn't lose a single game in the Challenge Cup, um, are trying to figure out how to maintain that quality. Uh, you know, if there was someone that maybe didn't give quite enough in this, you think maybe Shay Groom could have worked herself into the game a little bit more, but Nichelle Prince was very good. Rachel Daly was very active. I thought that the dash defense got pulled in some ways that they didn't really get pulled in the challenge cup, but that's really just kind of credit to Gotham. Um, And midge purse gets this goal. Okay. So this was a thought that I had that I hadn't really considered before, but if midge purse does not go to Tokyo, whether in the 18 or alternates, she's got to be a golden boot front runner, right?
1: I I think you tweeted that in fact, Um, although maybe, maybe uh, we said the same about Sophia Smith because after what she did tonight, that's very true. Yeah.
0: Um, Just, you have to think a player like that who can play out wide and play centrally. And when the league, there is no Olympic break. So you'd have to think that that's a period for some of those bubble players to really kind of pop off. Maybe midge purse.
1: Well, and I think Gotham might not get as hurt by the Olympic break as, as some of the other squads too.
0: Yeah. I also think that Ali Long has proven to be a really good pickup for Gotham. It was exactly what they needed for that midfield, considering that McCall Zerboni has not been available to play. Um, I thought that the stat, the top three, the top three fouls. Um,
1: they said it twice, at I, least twice. Really and it was funny. like, maybe you want to let that one go.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Zerboni, Zerboni, Long, and Lloyd are the top three names at, at the, the foul leaderboard for NWSL careers. I thought that was pretty funny. They'll, they'll bust heads. Okay. One final thing though, um, about this game is I had some substitute confusion about this match where I, I, f- I am still, I'm going to be completely honest. I am still a little bit confused about the sub rules. Um, I don't know if maybe I missed an official confirmation that they were keeping five subs for the regular season. Uh, I know they were doing it for the challenge cup. Mm -hmm. They've carried that through into the regular season. They also have the concussion subs, which that was, that was not really explained by the league itself. I believe that they maybe have made, you know, when you think like in the Kansas city game, I think that was a concussion sub and So that opens up a new window for substitutes. Um, There were not many subs made in this game, this Gotham versus Houston game. And I'm wondering if managers are not using that opportunity enough, or do you just think that they should just stick with kind of that common knowledge? We're going to stick to two or three subs and let this team work it
1: out. I always feel like once you get, past three subs it really changes the nature of the game you see that a lot in international friendlies when they get past that third sub it just completely changes the nature of the game and it makes the last 20 minutes 15 minutes really chaotic because you lose your shape you lose the understanding um and so i i can see managers looking at that and saying i'm not gonna go more than two or three if I have to because I think that that just happens
0: yeah I agree I also could see how there would be a mentality shift from challenge cup to regular season Mm -hmm. in that sort of philosophy um so yeah so Gotham gets the win they get the goal their attack looks as dangerous as ever I think the defense might come down to earth eventually but they just got to keep riding that momentum while they have it um but we did at least get a goal because we are going to talk about this. we be the last one in this segment. We're going to talk about one more game that was played on Saturday. It was another nil nil draw between OL rain and the North Carolina courage. Um, It was an interesting match in that definitely had some NWSL after dark vibes, but not in the chaotic kind more just in the, is this game real kind? Because That tiny field in in Tacoma, it's a little bit wild even just to look at. The players play a little bit differently, and it did kind of seem like it might have frustrated North Carolina on Saturday night. Um, This game wasn't great. It was another game where things were just a little bit um, disjointed. North Carolina, I think, had almost maybe I think a two- They were at like two expected goals based on their XG and they just could not get something dangerous going in front of goal. I thought Karen Bardsley had a decent game, but I also don't think that many of those shots were forcing her to do too much. Um, Another one where the midfield was a little bit passive, Ziara King was really kind of slashing through that North Carolina midfield. And I don't know if that is having to do with the field or the travel or what they're still working out, but I think that you saw... North Carolina still have some of those weaknesses, whether it's on the outside or in the middle of the field. Um, but the main overarching thing, there's not a lot of talk about in this one other than, you know, neither team played all that great. Both teams probably should have had at least one goal. However, in the grand scheme, another piece of news is we did actually get official confirmation that Eugenie La Samer will be joining all rain on loan from Olympic Lyon and um, We heard some reporting that Rose Lavelle is likely to join her. We already have Marazon and Buadi announced. Right. So for the rain, they're just kind of treading water, right? Until the cavalry arrives. You got to think.
1: Well, and then, and then you have to go through the whole thing of, of how do you integrate those players? And how does that change the dynamic? Number one of your team on the field, but number two, your locker room as well. And it's never easy when players come in and, and are taking other players' spots. And you'd have to imagine that of the players you mentioned, at least three of those are more or less walking in to the starting 11. Right. So now you've got a third of the team that was starting or having a chance to start on a weekly basis, now not. And plus, you know, if, if you look at O.L. Rain's roster, they've got a fair amount of talent on the attack. And that's really going to make getting on the field for them tougher uh, for those individual players. It should, in theory, make the team much, much better because those are all very dynamic players, right? right. Uh, Les can burst down the wing and, and open up a defense. Uh, Marjan is probably one of the best in the world at delivering the final ball. And Lavelle can do both of those things. Right. Right? I mean, she can she can blow people off the dribble in the middle of the field and deliver the final ball and score goals. And so, yeah, depending on when those players arrive and how quickly they get them integrated into the squad, I think that completely changes the the dynamic of that squad.
0: I think you're right. And I do think that you're right, that it's going to present some challenges in addition to making them a better team. I think that positionally they're a little bit lopsided with the people coming in. Arguably the best player in that whole game was Jess Fishlock. I don't know how you take her off the field. If she's healthy. Um, Megan Rapino looked active and engaged in her minutes in the game. Ziara King looked pretty good. Uh, they were also really, really missing the presence of Quinn. I thought um, they were out with, with an injury and, that role, that defensive mid role, especially having just traded Allie Long out of the squad, they're not really bringing anybody in with that sort of a presence. It's going to be very attacking minded. I think their defense has some big question marks. They're like playing fullbacks as center backs and center backs as fullbacks. And they have not shored those parts of the field up. But you just have to think that they just think the quality will overcome that, but it's kind of a funny thing down the road to think, okay, so maybe the Olympics happen and is maybe Laysomere is going back to OL and Megan Rapino's coming back into the team. What are Rapinoe's club goals this year? It it, it is just kind of interesting to see kind of how they're going to do that. Cause I don't think you put Laysomere and Rapinoe on the right, right? You're not moving those kinds of, you're not moving those players, Um, so anyway, I think that this will be an, a conversation for the future, but the thought that I had this week was yes, France is not going to the Olympics. Yes. Germany is not going to the Olympics, but Canada is. And I think that the rain are going to miss Quinn a lot because they are having a very strong beginning to their year, um, for North Carolina, just kind of more of the same. And to be completely honest, I'm not, I was neither worried by this performance nor encouraged by it. I think that they are just exactly who they are
1: they are who we think Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> they we are they are who we said that they know that they are. Um yeah, so I think they're going to be fine. I think that the weaknesses are the weaknesses and the strengths are the strengths and the finishing will work itself out, but the other stuff I'm not entirely sure. So that was match day 1 of the NWSL regular season kickoff. We have three more games to discuss in the second half, two of which are more NWSL games and one Really kind of wild game that got played in Europe this week. So stay tuned. We'll be back in a bit. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to part two of this week's edition of the Equalizer podcast. I am your host, Claire Watkins. This week, I am joined by John Halloran. Uh, I say this every week. Going to say it again. Like and subscribe to the podcast. Go ahead and give us a rating. Five stars. Say nice things. Subscribe. It always helps us with our numbers and it helps people find us. So give us a shout on your favorite streaming service. So before we talk about the final two NWSL games of the weekend, we're going to talk about what happened on Sunday afternoon because the UEFA Women's Champions League final was played in um Gothenburg and it was not close. <laughs> uh and this is going to be a theme I think for the B block here. Uh some games that are I think it's really wild there is something so destabilizing about a soccer game that goes this wrong. It's weird for the team that's winning. It's weird for the team that's losing. It's weird for everybody watching. It's uh Yuki Nagasato said it today. It was like the five 2 2015 world cup win for the United States. And you're thinking this is amazing, but also this is not the same sport. Um, so Chelsea was playing Barcelona. Chelsea has, it's a disaster, big, big, big disaster uh (laughs) there's an own goal in the first minute followed by a soft penalty and then two really beautiful goals by barcelona puts them down four to nothing at halftime and that's it the second half nothing happens both barcelona and chelsea have kind of shook hands and are like we're gonna pass the ball around until this game is over um obviously storylines being that Barcelona lost by quite a bit to Lyon in the 2019 final. They have developed and worked on getting better since, and they were able to show off that quality this year. Um, definitely for American fans, we were talking about, you know, this was another really high profile loss for Sam Kerr, her team getting kind of annihilated in a final. There was some back and forth because she, uh, she had made a comment about the uefa women's champions league 2019 final not being competitive and then this one was also not very competitive on her end um i know you watched this one john did you have any any main takeaways
1: i just think it's it's exactly what you're saying and that the way that that match started chelsea just gets the wind sucked out of them so fast and in such a freakish way that opening goal now look there was a breakdown which led to that so um you know, it, uh, there, there was a giveaway in the back as Chelsea was trying to transition up the field. I don't, this might even be hard to, for people to remember because this was literally in the first 20 seconds of the game, but right. Chelsea tried to come forward. They lost it in transition, which is the worst time you can lose it. Barcelona burst down the left side, uh, brought the ball into the middle, hit the po- hit the crossbar. Right. Then there's yeah. a loose ball. Then the ball, then a really terrible putback that goes like 30 yards up in the air. Um, that that kind of bounces around but then the clearance the Chelsea defender clears it off another Chelsea player yep and then the ball jumps up into the air with this weird spin towards the corner the Chelsea goalkeeper still almost saves the ball so Mm -hmm. this is the most bizarre sequence of events that you can possibly imagine it's a freak opening goal which is then followed up you know seconds later by a penalty that I'm not a hundred percent sure was a penalty. Now I wish that there were some different angles to that, but it really looked like the Barcelona player kicked the back of the feet right. uh, of the Chelsea player, and and then just fell down. And she, it looked like she was in pain. Right. It looked like that whatever had happened hurt. But I don't necessarily think it was a foul. Now you're down two nothing, five minutes in, and and you know not to take anything away from what Barcelona then does you know for the next two right but it, I don't know what you're supposed to do if you're Chelsea in that situation. It's just such a such a gut punch it's um, that old adage that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth and when it right. happens that quick and that hard, uh, I, I just don't know how mentally you pull yourself out of that abyss
0: right and it was going to take it was going to take Barcelona really taking their foot off the gas and they just didn't do that for it only took them 35 minutes to get four goals and then they did take their foot off the gas but at that point it's four goals what do you do um yeah and you looked at some other stuff happening in the game where barcelona was really kind of annihilating chelsea's fullbacks chelsea had some injuries on the outside so they were playing like their third fourth choice fullbacks you saw uh tactically you know Emma Hayes has had moments in this Champions League where they haven't looked entirely prepared for what other teams are doing we saw that in their game um against you know Bayern Munich we saw that in their game against Wolfsburg so I I don't know I think that it's you definitely maybe do a little bit of hand wringing after this one a little bit of questioning the Chelsea project but I just think that as you said, it went so horribly wrong at the beginning of this game. And it's a final and I don't know what you do to set it right. Other than try not to lose the second half. And they didn't. And just a big, yeah, big congrats to Barcelona. I do want to bring up one other thing though, in the context of, of Barcelona's uh, development, which is that we've talked about this on this podcast before, and I'm sure we talked about it off it as well, which is the, Spain is really starting to come into its own as not only, right. They have a power one, really just one powerhouse club team right now. They didn't lose a single game in their domestic league this year, but they are the best team in the world, according to the UEFA competition, right. Or the best team in best team in Europe. They have had some really intriguing and positive performances on the international stage, in these most recent international friendlies, and they were even pretty good. Right back in 2019, they yeah. gave the U.S. a big scare. In 2020, they played a very close game against the U.S. in the She Believes Cup. You have to think if if Spain is getting that killer instinct, and a lot of Barcelona is made up of Spanish players, not all, but but many of them, um, if they've got that mental aspect unlocked through experience and work you have to think that they may be dark horse front runners for the euros or even a really deep run in the world cup in 2023 right
1: i think you're you're seeing that development and i I would say that there's a couple of things i think my initial reaction when you talk about the rise of spain on the international stage is that we have said this about other teams throughout time so whether that was china in the 90s or Norway you know had their time in the sun or there were times I mean look we've thought France for the past eight years was going to make a breakthrough and they never did there was a there was a point there where it looked like Canada was going to become a big rival for the U.S. and then they kind of fell back Um, I think perhaps one of the differences is that Spain very much has this intensely strong soccer culture Right. And there have been very few countries in the women's game that have had that culture and then fully committed to developing the women's side of the game in their country. And if yeah. Spain goes that direction, that could be really scary um, you know, for the U.S.'s dominant place on the world stage, because um, w- whatever you want to say about the United States, um, the the gender cultures in a lot of these other cult, a lot of these other countries, women are not expected to be athletes or to be competitive right. or to be physically strong, and so there are a lot of cultural forces working against other nations ascending on the international stage. And if that culture in some of those countries changes, or if And we've talked about this for 20 years. If some of these cultures start or countries start to put a little bit more investment into the women's side of the game, that's going to change the paradigm. Um, So, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to jump too far ahead based on, you know, what might just be a golden generation for Spain, but it certainly looks promising and it looks promising in a way that, you know, we've seen what impressed me most about Spain in 2018 and 2019 was that in 2018, They showed that they could dominate possession against the U S and then in 2019 in the world cup, they abandoned possession and showed that they could stay physically with the U S which is not something anyone expected. Anyone watching that game, anyone in the stadium, no one on the U S coaching staff, Mm -hmm. no one expected that game to play out the way that it did. And so I think that Spain and players, especially who grow up in a soccer culture, have an ability to change tactics, change formations in a way that U.S. players are generally not accustomed to.
0: Yes, I agree. Um, I'm excited for the Euros next year. I am looking forward to seeing how that paradigm starts to these slides, especially when you look at Europe because you do, it is a little bit more mercurial in Europe sometimes where you have Mm -hmm. teams that are kind of surging and then they come back down. And I think that you're exactly right that we do not really have a footballing culture in, in America, in the United States, but we make up for that in other ways, the viability right. of being an athlete commercially, you know, that kind of stuff. And and then obviously title IX legislation and all that sort of thing. But it, that the, the idea that as these countries start taking this a little bit more seriously, or even if you just say like these clubs start to take this a little bit more seriously, that built-in footballing culture is going to go yep. a long way. Yep. Um, and so I, I am excited to kind of see what happens because in some ways it feels like something we've seen before and in some ways it feels kind of new. And so um, I think it's going to be fascinating to see to see what happens. And I think it's only good. I think that the more competition the U.S. has to keep pace, the better. I think that you want more countries to have – you want to this example – to be emulated, not just in Europe, but in South America and Central America and these other areas that have so much talent. So um, yeah, congratulations to Barcelona capping off a really fabulous year. Chelsea, I think still has the FA cup to play. So they're going to have to pull things together uh, to continue on into the end of their year. Um, But going back stateside, we had two games on Wednesday night that kicked off about an hour apart from one another. So I'm not sure anybody really got to see both games in full. Um, so we started with Orlando hosting the Washington Spirit. Uh, a little bit of Washington Spirit news. It was announced that Alex Ovechkin is, uh, is going to be an owner for them. So we had more ownership news. I forget if we mentioned as well that Chicago had some ownership news over the past couple of weeks. So we're still seeing investment in these teams. Um, so this game ends 1-1 but what I saw for the most part was I saw the nil-nil first half of this game and it still seemed, again, just a little bit tentative. Both teams had some chances. So Washington debuts Emily Sonnet defensive midfielder, which is something that they've talked about and wanting to do in the past a little bit. They don't actually really go for a three back. They do still have a four back, um, what did you think? What do you think of the idea of Emily Sonnet as your six, John? I,
1: I don't know. I think it's tough when you move players around at this stage in their career. I don't think that she has had any significant experience at that position since maybe her college days. And I think that when you do that to players, it it it's trickier. Um, but on the other hand, You know, she has a disruptive style to her play, her natural disruptive style to her play, which can often be very effective as a six. And it would also help mask because there are times where she gambles and she just goes and sometimes she makes the wrong decisions. And if you're in the back line, that is a catastrophe. If you do that in the middle, uh, in the midfield, you still have players behind you who can help stop the attack. So, you know, I don't... I don't think it's, it's the worst idea. And, and maybe, you know, a few months from now, we look back on this and we say, wow, that really helped out. I think for me, the bigger thing is that, you know, we talked about Washington's slow start in the challenge cup, at least yeah. compared to expectations. And now you're starting off the regular season with a draw and, You know, look, Orlando's improved, but I still don't think anybody is looking at Orlando as a top team. Right. And I think people pretty much expected Washington to be the number two or number three team in this league this year. Right. And there's nothing in the results that would indicate that that's where they're going to finish.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that they have more question marks than they thought that they did. And the two players I want to highlight there are. The two Ashleys actually, Ashley Hatch and Ashley Sanchez. Cause I think at least based on what we were told going into this season, they were very secure in those two. You got Ashley Hatch up top. You mm-hmm. got Ashley Sanchez working into this role in the number 10. And there has been a, some plateauing of both of those players. Hatch, you know, worked her way into a bubble spot with the U S she did the right. ID camp for them. Sanchez had a couple really exciting moments in the 2020 challenge cup but that has not necessarily turned into something that is super effective at this moment. And so you know that we knew the things about Washington that were going to be different, right? Integrating Kelly O'Hara, getting Emily Sonnet involved, deciding whether or not they want to do a three or a four back those kinds of things. Trinity Rodman, they've got the kid up there, you know, she's doing really well, but it needed Ashley Sanchez to take that next step forward, especially in the role that she's being asked to do, with Rose Lavelle no longer with the team. And I'm not sure we're quite seeing that quality just, just yet. And you start to think to yourself, maybe this is one project too many. Um, Ashley Hatch didn't start this game. Rodman, Rodman started over Hatch. Hatch didn't come in later and she did get the goal. It was a great header. Yeah. Um, but I just think that they have more roster questions than maybe we were led to believe.
1: Yeah, I think, cause if you look at this team, at the beginning of 2020, it was almost a finished product. Right. At least it looked like it was almost at that stage. Now, again, there's been injuries and there's been changes to their, their lineup. But when you looked at this team at the beginning of 2020, you had your back line more or less finalized. If you looked at Staub and, and Nielsen and Houston and McGrady, you looked at that midfield and you said, OK, we've got Sullivan and DiBiase and Lavelle. Um, it was more or less there. They were going to add an attacking piece or two and then kind of finalize it. And that's, you know, they brought Sanchez in and you thought, okay, like this is, this is what they're going to go with. And then things started to happen, whether that was Sullivan picking up the knee injury, which limited her time, whether that was Lavelle moving on. Um, and then you bring in, as you mentioned, maybe one project too many. And we've talked about this multiple times on this pod that O'Hara and Sonnet, and now you've got to integrate them into the squad right. and you bring in Rodman. And this is not in any way to denigrate what she's done. Cause she almost across the board, people would say she's done the most, one of the most impressive players, but I don't think maybe anybody other than Richie Burke thought she was going to step in this early and be this good well, now that creates an issue. Now you got to move pieces around or rethink right. how you might want to set up based on that. And there's just so many moving parts. And I got to say, like, if I was in that position, there's a point where you have too many options right? and it just creates more confusion. And he's got to start to get, he's got to start to put a couple of post holes in. They're going to ground the squad and he's going to say, okay, this is always going to be my six. And this is, you know, always going to be my eighth and I'm always going to play this player here. And then, you know, if you need to rotate the squad here and there, it's not as big of a deal, but right now, you don't know what formation they're going to play. You don't know who's going to play in what position, let alone who's going to be the starting 11. So it's not even just rotating players within a system. It's rotating the system and then moving players to different positions within the system you add all of those things up and you're now talking about dozens and dozens of combinations that you've got to think through. And then even if you find the right one, if that takes six, seven games, you then need another four or five games until that coalesces. Now you're halfway into the season. Right.
0: Um, Yeah. And the other thought I had while you were talking is, is that idea of where do you put people? What's the best combination? I mean, one of the side effects of, putting Emily Sonnet in at the six is that you're pushing Andy Sullivan towards goal, which the team has talked about wanting to do. Um, And I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea, but it is just another change and isn't necessarily just keeping it as single as as simple as possible and letting players play to the best of their ability Uh, on the flip side, on the flip side though, it really seems like Orlando has figured out how to calm their minds a little bit Mm -hmm. and trust some simple soccer. And it doesn't always necessarily make for the most exciting of games, but some of that confusion and the mental lapses that we saw in 2019 are really just not happening this year. And they're able to just kind of very pragmatically take steps forward with what they're doing. Um, I thought Sydney LaRue looked, looked up for it tonight obviously they got the equalizer just going very direct to Alex Morgan, who that was a class finish. I thought, you know, she just tipped it up over the goalkeeper. Um, I thought Phoebe McLernan had a good game. She kept Rodman in check for the most part or worked very hard to keep Rodman in check. And Orlando is kind of finding a place to put their feet right now. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has to be really positive for them.
1: Yeah. I think you saw, they brought a couple of players in, this off season, uh, veterans and defenders who could, as you talk about, calm things, so just mm-hmm. keep things a little bit more even keel, and then take advantage of what you got, which is speed and power up front. Right. Play the ball up there, find opportunities, as they did at the end, to put Morgan in or to get Larue, you know, faced up on goal, um, and and stay in the games. And, right. it, you know, this is this is something that whether we're talking about the, the Chelsea match or, or the Chicago match, which we're coming up to next is if you can just keep the game close, at least you give yourself a, you know, a punching chance to, right. to pull something off at the end and what you're not seeing out of Orlando this year, which you did see quite a bit in 2019 is we give one up and then it's two, three, four. Yes. Right. All in succession complete and utter collapse. And that's just not happening this year. And that's been, you know, again, it's very, very early, but that's been the difference.
0: Yep. Agreed. So they have to be feeling pretty good. Um, I do think in general, what we've seen in in the league is that there are no disaster teams. No team here is a disaster. And we, maybe a team is one injury away and we'll see about that. But um, I think that that is good and bad in that, It's good that the general level is raising, that the parity is continuing, but it is kind of turning into, and this is a good segue to our final game. Is there only one good team in this league right now?
1: (laughs) One dominant team, I guess. Yeah. 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 Well, North Carolina, I think is going to number one, they're incredibly dangerous. They could score five goals on five shots, right? They could score zero goals on 25 shots. So they're going to be a bit up and down, but, you know, assuming they do bring Sam Mewis back as, as has been reported. Um, I think that's obviously going to make a big difference because any midfield in the world with Sam Mewis and Dabina right is going to be dangerous. So I think, yeah, Portland has clearly let their intentions be known if that wasn't clear enough in the right. offseason season when, you know, they're like, Oh, well, I think we'll pick up, crystal done because we weren't good enough yet. And right. you know, you're know you seeing Smith and Weaver really start to take the next step. And last season we saw Hubley step mm-hmm. up in a big way on the defensive end. And so they just keep, uh, you know, adding pieces. And then of course they went out there and, and whether it was winning the challenge cup or what they did to, to Chicago tonight, just really saying, here we are, come and get us.
0: I mean, they, it was almost like they watched Barcelona and said, (laughs) we can do that. You know, (laughs) um, and they'll actually theoretically play each other. They're only, they're going to play either Lyon or Barcelona. I don't know which one they will end up playing, but, um, I think that's true. Maybe I'm making that up, but in the ICC in August, so Portland hosts Chicago. This is the last game of the weekend. I think we knew, I think we all knew kind of how this was going to go. I don't think we thought it would be this bad. Yeah. You talk about just a disaster. So you have a Tierna Davidson own goal in the first five minutes of the match, another penalty. This is, it was actually kind of shades of this Champions League final penalty that was scored by Christine Sinclair. Sophia Smith then gets two goals on her own. And then um, it was Tyler Lucy who got the final goal at the end of the match. Uh, another thing that happened in this game is that Julie Ertz got hurt pretty badly. Yeah. And we don't know exactly how serious it is after the game. Rory Dames said that they're going to get her an MRI We're recording this on Sunday. I think this is coming out on Tuesday. So I think in between Sunday and Tuesday, she's going to get an MRI and maybe we'll get more information on that, but it didn't look good. It was her right knee. Uh, it looked like something happened when she and a Portland player both kicked the ball at the same time on mm-hmm. opposite ends of the ball and she got her leg got yanked and, and that is never, never good. You don't see Julie Ertz take something like that often. Um, I don't know. I mean, yes, Portland is good. We know this. What do the red stars do now though? I think is the question.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I think, and, and I said this on Twitter tonight, but I just said that they're, they have too much talent and too much experience to be all three and two. Uh, yeah. You know, in their first five games of 2021, and I know that those are technically separate competitions, but they're still five official games, and they haven't won one. And they got obliterated tonight. And listen, they they have never been good in Portland. Right. When they go on the road to Portland, it's bad. It's right. always been bad. It's you know, at least for the conceivable future, it probably always is going to be bad. Um, and and as we already said, Portland. Uh, not only has picked up more pieces, but their their young players like Weaver and Smith really showed tonight that they're taking that next step. I don't know with, with Chicago because look, we we can talk about Sam Kerr and the inability for any team I think to replace her. We can talk about the McCaskill and Nagasato trade, which I still don't understand. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that those are the three front players from the 2019 championship team. That midfield and that defense is still too good right. to be giving up, let alone five goals. I mean, we could even look back at the Challenge Cup where you have games like the one against Ole where they gave up three goals.
0: Right.
1: Uh, that shouldn't be happening. Tierna Davidson is, you know, or at least uh, is pretty widely thought to be the next in line to be the starting center back for the best team in the world. Right. Sarah Gordon has received national team call-ups Casey Kruger has had many, many years of national team call-ups Aaron Wright, I think has only had one call up and yes, she's coming off of a a pregnancy. Um, So I guess, you know, maybe you can excuse that, but then that midfield is Julie Ertz, arguably the best number six in the world, Danny Colaprico and Vanessa DiBernardo, who people consistently talk about as being two of the more underrated players and some of the best midfielders in the league. So when you combine those seven players and Alyssa Nair, who is the starting goalkeeper for the United States women's national team, you now have this, this group of uh, you know seven, eight players who should not be giving up a goal a game. And if it's one, fine, maybe you can work your way back. But two should be unacceptable. Three is a disaster. Five is off the page.
0: Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I completely agree. I think we saw, and I don't know, this is where I genuinely, you know, I'm not trying to act like I know more than I do. But when the defense and the midfield are struggling so deeply to get on the same page, and this is, this isn't fair what I'm about to say, but it is the thought that you have. And the thought that you start to have is effort. You start yeah. having effort questions. And I don't think that's necessarily fair to those players, but you saw that even there were some goals that were not scored where they lost markers on set pieces. They've always struggled with set piece defense. Um, it seemed like Nayer was not always on the same page with her center backs. Uh they could not get through that midfield three of Sinclair or four of Sinclair, Haran, um, Dunn, and Rocky Rodriguez. Uh, and also they let Dunn – this was Dunn's best game in a Portland Thorns jersey by far. And I think that this is when you just talk about Portland being scary – that was a gear that they hadn't hit yet, even in the mm-hmm. challenge cup of right. done really feeling comfortable in the system and her run out against Chicago was what they want and what makes them, I'm sure they would say one of the best clubs in in the whole world. And yes, like they, they conceded the third they or they conceded the fourth right after Ertz came off. They conceded the penalty right after the own goal. You see some of those similar mental things where sometimes these things comes in spurts. It is really concerning that they gave up three in their last match and they gave up five in this one because that was not happening at the beginning of the challenge cup. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly with the players that they have available to them. What do you do when you have a very set 11 of players that you trust and they are not giving you what you need?
1: Yeah, I think almost they need to go back to to kind of their their DNA, which was you know obviously working hard. And you mentioned that right. because the the one thing that shouldn't should never be acceptable, regardless of talent level, is that we saw in the second half we saw Christine Sinclair, Rocky Rodriguez, and Lindsay Horan get open in the box on set pieces in the yeah. second half when it was already four nothing. Um, so that game could have even been worse. But maybe you go four four two. You, you play two lines of four. You keep it simple. You play tough, hardworking defense. You cramp up in the middle a little bit, and you look to counterattack. Because right now, w- the setup that they have, which is meant to be a possession system, is just not working for them. And they, they, they this team made their bones in, in 2013, 2014, playing that diamond midfield, playing compact trying to keep the game 0-0 as long as possible and maybe pick up a goal. Now, this was before they had a lot of talented players. This is when they were just a grit team, and I don't think they are uh, talentless anymore. I think they have nice pieces, but maybe you need to kind of go back to that. And look, people are going to call that regressive, right. and people are going to criticize the idea of, of you know going away from a 4-3-3, which is more or less the accepted world formation at this point but the bottom line is they need to be able to pull points. And right now they are not set up to do that against anybody. Right. And that's a real problem
0: Yeah, because they,
1: they had, they had a relatively easy schedule in the challenge cup with, with who they were playing at what points with the international break. And they still haven't won a game.
0: Yep. Right. So it is one of those weird things where I know for us, we watch the team very closely. We're both based in Chicago. Um, Some of this feels like some stuff that we've seen before and we figure that the team will work out some Mm -hmm. of it, but some of it feels kind of new uh, for this group. And so that I think is where it gets a little bit scary. You have to assume that Ertz is going to be out for a while, barring a miracle. Um, They're going to get Morgan Gatra back next week. I'm sure that they're looking forward to that, but um, yeah, they host Gotham next, next weekend. And I think that you have to consider that a must win or a must something pause, some sort of positive
1: result. A point at least least.
0: exactly and it's a home game
1: so really you should be hoping for more
0: exactly otherwise you start to really maybe lose the plot so yeah we will see so that was a a long first weekend of nwsl play uh hopefully we didn't miss too much i have to admit at some point it did get a little bit overwhelming but i stuck to my notes hopefully we we touched on everything that happened um And we will be back next week with more action. Uh, Thank you, John, for joining me. Shout out to our producer extraordinaire, Jacqueline Purdy. I have been your host, Claire Watkins, and this has been the Equalizer podcast. See you guys next week.